coming up on the Louis Diaz podcast. The, the, the stuff that I saw in India was just like absolutely mind warping in so many ways that it, it, it this, the phrase certainly applied significantly more at the end of the trip. Hi, and welcome to the Louis Diaz podcast, the podcast where you'll meet some of the most fascinating and incredible people from all walks of life. And together, we're inviting you in to be our special guest as we take you through some of their amazing experiences, adventures, and journeys. So sit back, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Louis Diaz podcast. Drew. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the Louis Diaz podcast. Thanks, man. You know what? I've been wanting to talk to you again since the last time we recorded. And the reason being, because last time we recorded, you told everyone this great story. And if you haven't listened to the first episode of Drew and I chatting, Drew tells us a story about how he watched a show on Hulu, right? Yes, sir. And The Last Tourist was what it was called. Yeah. Tell us about it. Give us a recap. Yeah. Well, if you haven't seen this documentary yet, check it out on Hulu or YouTube or wherever you can find it. I highly recommend it. Um, It's called The Last Tourist, and it's basically about the goods and the evils of tourism and how good tourism can really help people and uplift communities and how crappy tourism can, you know, suck the life out of a community. And so, uh, yeah, long story short, there was a segment on there about some women taxi drivers in, uh, in India. And I was just like gobsmacked by the idea. I thought it was just like really amazing story about them uplifting each other out of poverty and, and creating their own businesses. And I was like, I got to get involved. Um, and so I reached out to them on Instagram. Amazingly, they replied and I was like, Hey, I'm going to go to India in about a month. Actually, back then it was like four months ago. So I was like, I'm going to go to India in about four or five months, but I want to do a photo shoot with you guys for free. And they love the idea. And I got, yeah, I got to meet them and meet up with them. And And in between, there was also a trip to Hawaii. But I remember while you were telling that story, how we were kind of reflecting on how amazing the modern world is that we can just sort of watch a show and then jump on social media and connect directly with the people and then tee all this up like it's just wild and for me having spoken to you about that and us having that little wow moment in that episode together and then you know for you doing it but then for me as a spectator watching you fulfill that was like shit this is real (laughs) so it's a small world yeah, I couldn't believe it either when they showed up and all the taxis are there and it's the it's the same taxis that were in the you know the Hulu documentary and you know all these all these gals are showing up and they're just setting up and everything. I was like, wow, yeah, just it is a really small world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I've been like reflecting recently on how suddenly people blow up and become like celebrities or influencers, and that you don't really know the background story right all you see is this new snapshot of them where Mm -hmm. they are now Um, and a lot of the time you're not there for the for the full journey and with you it was kind of like really great insight into what that journey actually looks like like someone's actually living their dream or fulfilling the goals that they set themselves it was like you talking about it in that first episode we recorded then you actually doing it and me getting to watch you actually do it 
was like it was a great experience for me and I'm sure it was for the rest of your fan base or the rest of your followers like what was the feedback like it was great yeah a lot of a lot of really good feedback and and for the record too I don't consider myself an influencer um it's almost a cringy word <laughs> yeah 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 I don't uh, consider I don't, you an influencer either but I just kind of had to put it in that context just to yeah I think you mean that like when because you, you kind of find people that blow up after they've blown up and you don't really get the whole meat of the story but yeah, man, it was really good. If nothing else, I was actually having a conversation with a friend this afternoon too about this. Like, I think people need to separate the idea that like being on Instagram means that you need to like influence people away from like what you actually do. Like you're a podcaster, I'm a photographer. And so like I produce photos, you produce podcasts and whether or not we influence people or not is like kind of a secondary thing. Yeah. And so for me, my goal was like, I really want to give these guys some incredible photos that they can be super proud of, that they can post all over their website, that they can post on their social media, which they are now. Their website has like new pictures. Their social medias all have new pictures. Um, they're sending out ad campaigns, uh, you know, with with the pictures that I took. And I was like, this is what I was hoping for was that they would use it, yes. um, you know, in a way to yeah, to actually grow as a business, not just some vanity metrics on social media, you know. Yes, <laughs> and that's and that was your goal. Like I remember. Yeah in that first episode we recorded that's what you wanted that's why you reached out to them and it's like mission complete mission complete stamped and sealed and done <laughs> it's just like for me it's just so brilliant like when you do, just even you talking about it just then i was getting like the hairs were standing up wherever oh, i've got man. hair left you know <laughs> um because I remember in that first episode, I was talking about your evolution, you know, like you were talking about being a, a landscape or wildlife photographer and thinking that shooting portrait was, was boring. Sure, yeah. um, and again, in this adventure that you've just been on, and we'll, we'll sort of go through some of the story of the whole adventure because I think it's just yeah. fascinating. But again, I felt like I was watching you evolve like right before my eyes. Because you started oh, doing this um, behind-the-scenes stuff. And mm -hmm. it wasn't the first time you were doing it, but it was like I had never seen you do so much of it. I loved it. I'm working on it. That was my biggest thing is I wanted to do more behind the scenes. I wanted to do more. It's almost like it's kind of evolving my style a little bit. Um, the more I travel to spots that are heavily photographed and like heavily traveled to by the masses, the more I look for like you know, you get there and you're like, okay, that's the picture that everyone takes. And you're like, I can definitely understand the appeal, you know, and, and then you take that picture and then you're like, okay, now what, you know? And it's like, at that point I start looking around and I'm like, oh, wow, this is very different than what I imagined. Cause you like build up this impression in your head of what you think a place is going to look like or what you think it's going to feel like to be there. Yeah. And then you get there. And I mean, certainly I think a lot of it is justified, but then at some point you start to like see the periphery of what else is going on. And you're like, wow, nobody talks about that. Yeah. There's no pictures of this. All you have to do is turn 10 feet to your left. And these pictures don't exist. No one has any idea what, what this looks like. All they see is the Taj Mahal, yes. you know, or whatever. And, and I think the more I spend time in India, the more I realize there's a lot of places that are completely undocumented, even though the popular places are five feet in front of them. Yeah, and the way that you capture that, like your imagery is beautiful, like the colors, it's full of life. And you've gone there to capture the real side of India from your perspective, not necessarily sure. the real side of India, but from what you yeah. see um, outside of yeah, the usual stuff that you capture, which is just brilliant. I just loved it, man. Thanks. Am I coming across as a big fanboy right now? Because it's like... <laughs> Dude, I'm a fanboy of yours, so we can we can call it even. <laughs> okay, okay, appreciate it. Um, 
But take us back to, right, you've just finished in Hawaii. You're setting up to go to India. What was your expectation? Oh, man. I knew that there was going to be some disparity between what I thought in my head and what I experienced. I, I definitely knew there was going to be dis some, some disparity between those two bubbles. I didn't realize the disparity was going to be this big. And I think that was the part that really just like smacked me. Um, I mean, I've, I've been in, you know, the favelas of Brazil, which is like widely considered one of the most dangerous places, you know, on the planet, um, you know, with gangs roaming the streets and, you know, stuff on fire. And, and so I thought that I've like seen a lot. And then I went to India and I was like, holy crap, I have like had no idea that that bubble could be so far apart from the other side. Um, so I guess to answer your question, yeah, I mean, building up to it, just pre mentally preparing myself for that split. And then more importantly, too, like, how do you portray that? Because are you going to be the guy that just takes the pictures of the pretty stuff and you completely ignore what's happening around you? Or are you going to, even if it pisses people off and even if you, you know, lose followers or if you lose, you know, or if you offend people, are you going to be the guy that, you know, shows the good with the bad? And, you know, so. Yeah. You know, you and I have only known each other a few months, essentially. But for me, you've always been someone and when I say always, I mean for the past few months, <laughs> being someone. Or even looking at your material beforehand um, and listening to how you talked about your previous stories in our last episode together, you've always been someone that's sought to be the most authentic version of yourself first and capture photos second. So yeah, I don't feel like losing a few followers here or there are upsetting people. Really, you're at, at the top of your priority list. No, no, it's not. And it's come for what it's worth. It's come. I've, I've kind of been, you know, I guess one on one here with you. I've been like tracking just these vanity metrics as I've been tipping my foot into the water of like telling both sides of the story. And it definitely hits like I, I started a new story highlight that I call The Last Tourist. Um, where I've been kind of putting in stories. Um, so I'm not like publishing feed posts or doing like huge, you know, I'm not UNICEF. My job is not to like bash the government or anything like that. And so my feed will always be like the beautiful, beautiful side of a country. And then it will always maintain that. I'm never going to post feed stories about, you know, sad stuff or, or depressing things. Um, but I did start posting some stories kind of to show the authentic side of like what was going on. And I posted it to that highlight and within like hours, I was losing, you know, 40, 50, 60, 100 followers a day. Um, I think I lost like 600 followers over the course of two weeks. Mm. Um, but it's it's leveled off now. So I think all of the people that just really didn't want to hear that story have jumped ship and uh, it's starting to <laughs> starting to break even. But mm, no, that's yeah. super interesting. I think um, I really love what you said at the beginning of our chat just then about us needing to abandon the idea that being on social media automatically makes you influential and i think right. that's a really great point that you made but it's a two-way street that people on the other side it's like the viewers um need to get rid of that idea as well i mean i've i've been absolutely captivated by it. like i think the stuff that you've been releasing has been your best ever um oh, thanks man so, that's a huge compliment thank you yeah no it really it really is and and it's because of the behind the scenes stuff not just like the finished glossy photos that are brilliant but because i get to pair them up against you know the actual sure. journey and what that looked like right and i was invested from the get-go i mean you had some dramas at, right at the beginning as well tell us about that yeah i mean it's first world problems 
So, I mean, but it was fine though. I got in and my bag arrived. Um, that was my first taste of like Indian airports is that, and there's like a direct, there's a huge, at least from like a Western perspective or from a non-Indian or non-Asian perspective, there's a huge difference between like the friendliness of like your everyday Indian who is extremely friendly, very, very welcoming. They love showing you around. They want you to like have a good time. And then like airport people who are just the worst people on earth. And I don't know what it is, but that, that huge difference only exists in the airports. So I guess if you end up having a really shitty airport experience in India, um, I promise it gets better once you leave the airport. <laughs> no, so. I lo- found it interesting there that you talked about it as a first world problem as well, the whole mm-hmm. flight thing. Because do you honestly think that after the experience that you had in India, and it was short but all-encompassing, I felt, that your perspective has changed on what a first world problem is? There, the the stuff that I saw in India was just like absolutely mind warping in so many ways that it, it it this the phrase certainly applied significantly more at the end of the trip than at the beginning. It's still frustrating as hell, um, you know. To my, my bag arrived um, ten hours early and they had it behind an international gate and the bag was like fifteen feet. I had an air tag in my bag that was tracking. And I could tell them right there. I was like, GPS, it's right there. I can see it. It's there. And they're like, now fill out a form online and come back in two days. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I have a flight to the middle of the jungle in six hours. I can't leave here without this bag. And it's right there. It's 15 feet in that direction. And they said, no, fill out an online form. And I'm like, you know, so that kind of nonsense. And it took three hours to persuade, you know, people that were dressed in military suits walking by to convince the guard to, you know, leave all my stuff down and go in and try to find it, you know, and then just it, it, that kind of drama. It still sucks. But compared to like the rest of the trip and kind of the stuff that you see and just, you know, the abstract difference, um, definitely a first world problem. <laughs> mm, yeah. And so we were, we were supposed to be having a debate. I want to get to that. You mentioned that you were debating whether to release certain things that you saw maybe we'll get to that in a little bit but you had a couple of experiences there you went to catch up with safari with rohit and then the taxi cab company so we'll go into a little bit of that sure yeah safari with rohit if you guys don't follow him and you want some amazing tiger content he's your guy um blown away with his expertise in the field something that i guess i didn't consider or i didn't know about when i was on safari or you know kind of going back to when you think of a spot prior to arriving, you have this conception of what it's going to be like, and then you get there and you're like, oh, wow, it's totally different. In my mind, I didn't realize that there's other Jeeps that are on safari as well. And so there's a little bit of competition of who's going to be the better guide to find the wildlife because they're either going to be the guide that finds the wildlife or you're going to be at the back of like seven or eight other Jeeps that got there too late, you know, and you're taking pictures of the back of other people's heads. And so, and I didn't realize that that was the case. And so I, maybe I just got very, very lucky with Rohit because he knows exactly what the hell he's doing. And, you know, we were there, you know, sometimes 20, 30 minutes before people even knew that there was a tiger in the area. And we we're just sitting there hanging out with this, you know, massive 600 pound tiger and like nobody else knew that they were there. And that's hats off to him. He really knows his stuff, and I got some of the best footage I've ever seen in my life, thanks to him. Wow. So, I mean, what's the premise of the the business? Is it just for tourism, or is it to raise awareness of the tigers there? Yeah, I mean, it, I think all of those, they're all reserves, they're all preserves, and they're being government-controlled. Only a very select small number of cars are allowed into um, into the actual parks, and the parks are split into zones. Think of it like Jurassic Park, like the different uh, different predator zones. 
But of those zones, only 20, I think, percent, Rohit's going to kill me for getting this wrong, but like 20% of the total park is accessible for tourism. The other 80% is completely wild. Uh, I mean, it's all wild. There's no, there's no structures. There's no fences. You know, the, the tigers come and go as they please. Um, but I guess the important thing is if they ever feel like they're tired of being, you know, in the same zone as a human, all they've got to do is move out of that zone. Mm-hmm. You know, so if there's 15 zones, zones one and two are available for Jeeps to drive through. And then zones three through 15 are completely off limits. And so if the tigers are like, okay, I'm done showing you my cubs today, they can just leave. And you may not see them for a year because they're wandering 200 miles the other direction. Right. So a lot of it is very much like a very wild tracking experience. It's not like, you know, they're stuck in this three mile area and you're bound to find them eventually, you know? Yeah. Yeah. One of the photos that you took that really I felt was just like something that you don't even see in much in nature documentaries was one of like a freshly clawed tree trunk and i was like oh man that's real that makes it so real when you see like the size well, of the it, was, it was a total accident we we went on safari that morning and had no luck whatsoever we were tracking a female so we had her paw. i mean we had everything all the signs were leading to her in that area but no signs whatsoever and then instead of going back to the lodge and like having lunch we were like man she's so close let's just stay in the zone because everyone else is packing up the way the safaris work is you have like a morning game drive and then you have an evening game drive and so you have to leave the park to allow the park all the animals to like rest for a few hours and if they decide to leave then they can go to the other zones and and get out of there and so instead of leaving the park completely, we stayed on the outskirts, kind of like, you know, just parked and got next to a lake and just kind of put up for a few hours. And, uh, I mean, I was taking a nap. I, I passed out cold. And Rahit was, you know, I think he was having a phone call with his family or something. But I woke up uh, maybe an hour and a half later, and he's like, you're not going to believe what's on this tree right next to us. And that was her claws. And he said, you know, it was probably only a few hours old. So she had come through the spot that we were napping at. <laughs> absolutely wild man i was like wow this is it gets real yeah you know and there's there's prey animals all around us there was you know these deer and bison and that sort of stuff within 20 feet of me so she could have been in that hunting zone (laughs) that we were taking a nap in yeah and i mean in our modern lives in cities that we live in in our communities we've very rarely if ever encounter such environments where there's a, a real prehistoric almost predator there right right yeah i think my favorite part of the game drives was well going back to like how all the other jeeps they all kind of stack up on each other and rahit's theory is you're either the first jeep or you're the last jeep but you're never one of the ones in the middle either you're the one that's making the uh either you make the discovery and you find the tiger or you show up at the very end because then you can get the exit route for mm-hmm. when the tiger moves so if the tiger's hunting or traversing you know, you have to be the last one or the first one so you can bail out of that zone and you can kind of anticipate where she's going to go. And so you can set up, you know, a, a photo. And in that scenario, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Jeeps all found a tiger. She was chilling out by the water. And so she's there relaxing. And she's like, okay, I'm done being her. She's going to get up and wander into the forest. So she walks off into the forest and he's like, okay, there's a clearing like a half mile away on the other side. If we park up on that clearing and, you know, get nice and quiet, there's a chance, you know, she might walk in front of of the clearing and so we did we posted up and waited and you know sure enough she walked out bright as day you know with it within five feet of me you know massive 500 pound female unreal yeah, mm. unreal man yeah. it's so good yeah a couple of things i'm thinking of firstly it must be so humbling to be hanging out with an expert like rohit who just knows what they're doing 
so well mm-hmm. that they can almost read the future. Right. Um, yeah. He's like, at the pinnacle of his of his profession. Yeah, that's really awesome that you got to hang out with him. But the other thing is that the, like you talk a little bit about like you know the tigers just upping and leaving when they've had enough. Like there's some kind of awareness that they've been able to build around mm-hmm. the human activity. And so yeah, do you not, feel that they're not like bothered by us, but obviously it's not a natural interaction either. And so at some point their cup is full. And they, you know, they're like, okay, I'm going to be a spicy cat now and take off. But it's never a frustration. And and everyone is very well trained to keep their distance. You know, if the cat approaches you, that's one thing. But they never approach the cat, which is good. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I'd be the first one to call it out. There's no shady, nothing shady happening at all. It's completely wild. And, you know, and a lot of people, it's a pretty expensive endeavor, you know, for the average person trying to do this. You know, you could spend as much as $1,000 a day and have probably a, 15, 10% chance of seeing a tiger if you've got a good guide. Mm. Um, you know, so a lot of people, they think to themselves, oh, I'm just going to go and drop a grand and hope to see the tiger. And they put a lot of pressure on these guides to, you know, find me a tiger, find me a tiger because I'm paying $1,000. I only get to be here for eight hours. It's, you know, it's today or never. And these guides are, are under immense pressure to do so because, you know, they want their reputation. They want to have repeat clients. And Rahit does it completely the opposite way. You know, he says, look, we're not doing one day safaris because you need to, like, get to know the animal. You have to learn the patterns. Mm-hmm. You have to understand the environment. You know, did she recently eat? Where are the cubs at? Where are the males at? You know, mm-hmm. the, the females will walk in and then you have a male next to them. And the male is so large, it makes the females look like cubs. They are enormous animals the males are humongous beasts just muscle and teeth and like the females are absolutely terrified them of them if they're not the one that they had that litter with and so there's all these crazy variables and factors deciding where they go and how they move you know and and so his style is we're going to do this for several days and and kind of create a log of all of these little pieces of information where they are and then maybe we have a really good sighting so yeah it's just it was a lot more of like an intimate curated experience than tourism (laughs) like if you went to india and only had that experience it's like it would have been fine incredible yeah and so how long did you spend with rohit and then where did you go next uh with rohit we went to three different national parks um over the course of 12 or 13 days um so we were doing back-to-back safaris for i think 12 days so we'd start at like four in the morning and we'd wrap up at sunset and we did that for almost two weeks straight and then I caught a flight to Delhi and then started doing the more kind of touristy things after that. By the way, for everyone listening right now, I'm linking Rohit here somewhere in the notes yeah. so you can check out what he does and the experiences because it sounds like it's, it's a very ethical experience. And it is, yeah. And not only ethical for the animals but also for his clients. He understands what it actually takes to have a proper experience with the tigers and he's not just going to take a 1000 bucks off you and then go, all right, let's try our luck. Right. So you're obviously going to see the taxi driver, the the taxi cab company at some point. So how long do you spend being a tourist in Delhi? And what did you do there? Not at all. Honestly, not at all. Um, I I was there for one night and I wanted, my goal was like, I want to drink like a local Indian beer. So, you know, I found a guy that was just chilling out in front of the hotel and I was like, hey, you've got a motorcycle. I'll give you five bucks if you take me to the coolest bar in the area and find an ATM. So I just hopped on the back of his motorcycle and you know, found an ATM, loaded it up, and then I bought him a beer and gave him some cash. And But no, Delhi was very, very quick and quick and painless, I guess. Um, yeah, made it to the uh, train station, the Delhi train station the next day. That was fun. That was, uh, I think I did a video or a, a reel on that. You did. Um, 
Tell us. Just wild. Well, yeah. So, um, so they don't tell you, you know, there's no, you get an email confirmation of where you're at, but then there's no placards or lines or anything that makes sense as to which car you're supposed to be in. So I booked the best car, like first AC, I think is what it like air conditioning cabin number one. Um, and I figured, okay, it's maybe it's going to be in the front. No, it's not. So I'm looking around for it. I can't find it. And so finally the train is pretty much getting ready to leave. And I'm thinking, I just got to get on this stupid train. And so I found second AC and I'm like, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe they don't have first AC. This is good enough. So I just got on and I found my seat and I sat down and it's just absolute chaos. I mean, there's like maybe this much space, you know, maybe 14 inches between you and the next row over. And, you know, there's this, this poor dude is being like lugged in on, he's being held up by like sheets and there's like six people holding him and he's got, you know, pins and needles stuck in his legs and he's got a bottle of morphine jabbed into his thigh and he's screaming and hollering and people are pushing and there's pillows flying everywhere because it's a it's a sleeper car that continues to other cities so people are trying to get set up for the night and just whoa like so much chaos happening all at once um and definitely had me debating if I had made the right call. Everyone, you know, there's a lot of coughing going on, um, which I didn't realize how much people cough. I'm just not exposed to that, that many people coughing all the time. And I sure. think it has to do with just the air quality in Delhi being mm. so poor that everyone is just hacking all the time. And so I'm like in this tiny little box, basically, with this dude who looks like he just got out of surgery. Everyone's coughing all over each other. And I'm like, man, I'm going to catch something in here if I don't okay. if I don't move on. And luckily, the guy that was taking the tickets came in and he was like, oh, you're actually in one car over. So I got all my crap and moved over and it was like this huge car by myself and you know legends of india <laughs> so <laughs> yeah but the guy walking up with morphine literally like like a bottle of morphine from like a world war ii movie yeah. stuck in his leg and then bandaged up and the morphine bottles just hanging out of the side and yeah. he's being lugged onto a onto a train by his like six buddies in a blanket yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wild. Wild. I think it's actually one of the bits that I enjoyed most about your behind the scenes reels and the stuff that you were doing on TikTok and um Yeah, yeah. It was the culture shock stuff. The culture shock factor was the most entertaining. So intense. So so intense, yeah. Um that was definitely the you know, and, and my my issue too, and I and I probably wouldn't do it again this way if I had to do it again, is that I had it, two very distinct trips. Like the first half of the trip was wildlife. The second half of the trip is like cultural landscape. And so I'm lugging around, you know, this massive lens and all of this safari equipment and my, you know, heat, cold weather gear, you know, heat gear, all this permethrin treated crap for the mosquitoes and all mm. this stuff. Like I'm lugging 50 pounds of wildlife gear through Delhi. So that's something that I'm learning a lesson of maybe like make it two different trips. Yeah, but, but yeah, I made it to, um, where was I going? I was going to Agra, which is home of the Taj Mahal and made it there. I met up with Nicholas again, my Danish friend. Um, hey, Nick. he was also there. Yeah. A shout out to Nick. <laughs> and we, we were going to meet up and shoot the, uh, shoot the Taj Mahal that night, but uh, yeah, success made it dropped off all my crap at the hotel. And then, yeah, we linked up to go shoot the Taj. Well, the Taj Mahal shots were I mean, look, I don't spend a lot of time on anywhere looking up shots of the Taj Mahal, but they were beautiful. You did a great job. They were sensational. Um, Thanks, man. Yeah, there was just so much. There's so much to go through. And I don't know where to sort of... You're going to need to lead this narrative, man, because I don't know where to go. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, the Taj is fun. Well, so the first night of the Taj, and this is like kind of one of those cool travel stories where you're like, you've seen a cool picture, but you don't know how they get it. And... The photo was the Taj. And if you see any like really big influencers or like travel photographers now, there's a certain picture that's circulating, uh, basically a like a boat and a, like a guy with like a paddle stick in front of the Taj Mahal, but it's from the riverside. 
And this photo is like that river is actually not, you're not supposed to be on it because some tourists drowned last year or something. So they blocked it off. But there's this one boat guy on the backside of the Taj. And if you pay him, he'll pay the guards. And then the guards will smoke some weed and let you guys get on that boat. And they'll just push out to see, like push out to the river and you get the shot. And now it's like this thing where you just know, you get to the Taj, you go to the East Gate, hook a right and go all the way to the water, find a guy where he's the only guy with a boat and you give him 10 bucks. He pays the guard. He keeps half for himself. He'll get you out and you'll get that famous shot uh, with the Taj and the river and all that. (laughs) But it's one of those things where like, if you don't know, you don't know. Mm. It's not going to be on TripAdvisor. Yeah, and I'm thinking about, you know, these really beautiful things that you learn about a community, like a society or the mm-hmm. way it actually functions when you arrive there um, right. as opposed to what it's like in the books, in the movies, even on social media. Like you get the full experience. Like when I was in Italy, I got the full Italian experience. There was no substitute for some of the weird, quirky things that you can experience yeah. and some of those fun things. There's only so much that you can get off your screen. And yeah, I think yeah. like back to that original point that we were making earlier, that's what I love about like you shooting both sides of the, the story yeah. because we're too... We're we're coming out of the Hollywood age, man. Like we're coming out of like the glitz and glam age and we're coming into what's real and people are craving right. that more and more. And I'm not sure right. maybe that we're, we're quite there yet, but yeah, I was so wrapped to hear that you, you got such a great response to your behind the scenes stuff. Cause I was like, yes, give it to me, feed me more because I'm curious, yeah. I guess. No, it's good. I mean, I I'm curious too. And I wish that all of the places that I researched, would show it just doesn't exist and maybe it's the algorithm maybe it's you know mm. maybe it's only the glitzy stuff gets published and pushed out there i don't know mm. you know because i've never there there is a little bit of a trend on social media where people will take a popular song and they'll like lip sync over it and it's like this terrible twisted version of the song and they'll tie that with the social media picture and then like the huge lines of people waiting to get that picture and it's like instagram versus reality yeah. i've seen this trend now and it's popping up and it's more and more so i think people are kind of over the bullshit you yeah. know yeah i've seen a couple of those instagram versus reality posts and yeah, yeah. i like it i like it i mean it's it, on, on one hand it's like I, I get the concept i think that they love to bash the crowds and the crowds i think is like the poorest example of that instagram versus reality because any place that's beautiful is going to have crowds that's just the way like there's you know, 8 billion of us or 7 billion of us floating around in this rock. There's going to be crowds of people, you know, uh, regardless. But what they should really show, in my opinion, is like, what else is going on? And maybe not the crowds, but like, t- let's talk about, you know, the overcrowding. Let's talk about the fact that people are living on $2 a day. Let's talk about the fact that there's no electricity in a third of that city, you mm-hmm. know, and that sewage is literally running through the streets and kids are playing in it. That should be the Instagram versus reality. Not, yeah. Oh, I spent three hours waiting in line to go to the Taj. Cause that, I mean, that is Instagram too. You know, that is reality. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think we're getting there. I think we are, but it's people like you that are taking us there. And that's the thing. That's the thing about being. Uh, you as well, my friend, we've got some travels planned. I can't wait for us to do this together. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that, that's the thing about being a trailblazer, right? Like, you, you notice that there's a gap somewhere in an industry, any industry, for example, like the social media industry, um, the content right. creation industry, you notice that there's a gap and you, and you know, that gap speaks to you enough for you to be the one that goes to do it. And it, yeah, it's not going right. to be popular at first, sure. But 
there's just so much merit behind it because I mean you, you've had an experience that most people that you that follow you will never ever get to have why wouldn't they want to see like the full side of it anyway I've talked about that enough but so you're in Delhi you've caught up with Nick the Taj Mahal when do mm-hmm. we get to the cab company? Yeah, so we wrapped up with uh, with Agra and the Taj. Got to shoot that. Yeah, that was that was an amazing experience. And then I caught another train to Jaipur, which is uh, kind of on the on the desert side of India. Met an amazing family that talk about hospitality. So I sat down, and you know we're all sharing this bench. And this, you know, I'm just like in the middle of this Indian family, his mom, dad, you know, kid, and you know, like some other people joined us as well. And she just pulls out this spread of just amazing food. And there's no question of like, is this little white boy next to us going to eat or not? It's he's going to eat. He's hungry. I wasn't hungry. I actually turned down the food. Um, you know, I was like, no, 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 no. I don't need like, you know, please don't. And she's like, no, no, this is this is for you. Like we share here. And she just opened up this huge spread. And was just piling on food and making me this stuff. And it was some of the spiciest food I've ever had in my entire life. I killed this bottle so fast. And they thought I was going to probably have, you know, a coronary. (laughs) It was just like, you know, I'm just in the corner red. But, you know, they told me about more about their culture. You know, I told them that I was going to Jaipur and and kind of what I wanted to do. And then ultimately I was going to be going to Varanasi. Um, Varanasi is, to Indians, called the city of light and then to foreigners they will occasionally call it the city of the dead and so it it gets a little bit of a bad ring um indians are not necessarily huge fans of it being called the city of the dead um they prefer it to be called the city of the light but yeah but that was varanasi that was the final goal and they yeah they were really really friendly about about kind of explaining the culture and what to look for and and why people do the things that they do and it was a nice little preface to it while i was eating their food yeah what a what a great experience to have. So, I mean, you just bumped into this family, right? Yeah, I was just sharing a bench with them in the, on the train, and they just opened up this huge spread, and it was a five-hour train ride. Yeah. And so we just – I asked them everything from – like, you know, I love – one of my favorite things to do if I'm, like, trying to break the ice is bring up politics because people always have an opinion about who their PM or their president or whatever. And I love to ask, you know, is he a good person? Is she a good person? And, and why? one way or the other and sure enough there's going to be like some little disagreements between the cab people and they'll be like casually bickering back and forth and you just get to like watch this whole thing unfold um you know and so yeah it was politics it was religion i got to learn a little bit more about hinduism obviously i got to learn the cultural side of where i was going and this is a great experience it was like some of the best five hours of the trip Mm. yeah it's funny when i studied film and television a long time ago and we were studying documentary filmmaking and the premise or the debate that documentary filmmakers have is how much to engage with the environment that Mm -hmm. they're in. And I found that debate really interesting. And I'm just listening to you now. It kind of reminds me of that debate because there's Drew that could be just going there to, you know, take the photos that he's promised um, Mm -hmm. and to, you know, get all the amazing shots and then go home. And if you go there, with that mindset you could be totally tunnel vision and you might even still have that experience with the beautiful indian family on the train but you might not remember it or you might completely forget about it it might not be worthy of talking about on a podcast but that's the thing i love about you is that you're willing to engage in your environment and the stories that have got nothing to do with the photos that you're taking are still the ones that mean the most to you yeah you're right that those are the ones that mean the most i don't i don't actually keep on my actual phone, I don't keep any of the photos that I that I publish. One, because they're enormous size-wise, but two, because 
like they're on Instagram. I don't need them on my phone. But the ones that I do keep are, you know, me taking a selfie with like all these people sharing lunch, you know, talking about the craziest random stuff on a train. <laughs> We're getting that shot to show everyone, by the way. Yeah, man. Yeah, I have it on my phone. I'll send it to you. But yeah, I think like going back to that, my idea of engaging in any sort of experience where you're there to sort of capture something is that you do have you you are part of the environment and you have a responsibility to engage i think we were talking about like wildlife um documentary filmmakers at the time Mm -hmm. this is going back and you know i sat in a lot of classes over those few years and this one really stuck with me around how certain wildlife documentary filmmakers they'll see like a lion cub going into some water and drowning and they won't save it because they feel like it's not interfering with the circle of life in a way but what is what what is that what does that actually mean i mean if you save the line on on one hand though we are part of the circle of life you know so it's like you know you're you're choosing not to interfere with their circle of life but we're all on this thing together i don't know that's an interesting yeah yeah. and where do you draw the line exactly where do you draw the line but for me i was like i'm fucking rescuing that lion cup i'm doing Mm -hmm. it because i'm there i'm part of the environment you know it's that you're in you're in the circle at that moment yeah that's it it's that saying if a tree falls in the woods and there was no one there to hear it doesn't make a sound i love that yeah yeah i think there's definitely you know that's a very high level observation like oh don't don't interfere but we're also we've got this giant noggin in our head that can do some really complex processing and understand like okay you know maybe there's not that many lions left in the world Mm. and uh you know losing one to such a stupid mistake you know Mm. yeah i don't know yeah or maybe by doing that you've starved a crocodile yeah true but yeah and so i went to make a documentary about the elderly people that do ballroom dancing and i was like i'm absolutely engaging i spent like two weeks before i even shot any footage going to their dance hall and just dancing with them because i was like you're gonna get a better you're gonna have a better experience if you open yourself up to the environment and fully engage and so so that what you're talking about just reminds me of of the love that i have for being present first and being a photographer second or a podcaster second Mm -hmm. and so at what point did you end up going to the cab company and did you feel like you were yeah did you feel like you were in the show (laughs) Uh, I felt like I was in their show because they were there. I mean, they're they're the rock stars that are defying. I mean, even so, yes, I I arrived to Jaipur, got set up. And the very first hotel that I walked into, it was rough. It was really, really, really rough. It was one of those ones where you figured out that they faked all of their reviews online. Like even like the TripAdvisor like plaque that they had was like full of typos and stuff on the wall. And I was like, oh, man, I screwed up. And so I had to like have this extremely embarrassing conversation where I like made up a lie about how I left something at my previous hotel and I couldn't stay there that night. And they were like, you know, you could tell they were obviously pissed. And I was like, just keep the rate for the night, man. Like, I'm not going to lose sleep over 40 bucks. Like, you know, just have it. Um, And then got in a cab and drove to another hotel. Um, set up much better accommodation that was you know don't compromise if you get like a feeling in your stomach when you're traveling like this something is not right like this is not the vibe don't compromise don't force yourself to stay there you can always make another 40 bucks or whatever do what you feel comfortable with in your stomach you know so yeah i went to this uh, other place and then met up with the with the taxi driver ladies and uh, i think the very first kind of like shock with that was that you know they pulled all the cars out and we're kind of in this public space and these girls are getting absolutely heckled by everyone like honked at you know being told that they're not parking correctly and like they're you know you're too far over and it's 
they're fine. The cars are fine. Everything's out of the way. It's just, you know, you got a bunch of, you know, kind of early 20s girls that, you know, are driving cars, which like straight up doesn't exist in India. And they're being hassled by all these, you know, 50, 60, 70 year old taxi drivers who, are, of course, are all men, you know, and they're just ripping into them, you know, giving them a hard time about how they parked and, you know, whatever. And it's just like, wow, the shoot started at 8 a.m. or 7.30. And this was already like, this is how they're starting their day is being harassed. So I was like, okay, I need to, we need to shift the focus away from that and really make it, you know, exciting and like awesome for them. And I want them to come out of this feeling great about the experience and not, you know, remembering all of the nonsense that happened just now. So that was my mission. And I just wanted to make them feel like they were the stars of their, well, they are, they are the star of their shows and they deserve the, you know, the shoot and they deserve all of the attention. And so, yeah, we did some photos, we did video, we even did like a little car chase scene where I got, you know, I was like hanging out of the side of one of the cabs, you know, shooting while they were driving and they, I mean, it's, it's awesome. The footage is great. Yeah. I need to see that. I didn't, I don't think I caught that. Yeah. that. No, I didn't post that. I only posted a handful of photos. Yeah. I haven't. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to see that. Um, yeah. But I mean, I remember a, a picture that I saw that you've you posted of them, and they just look so happy. They look so thrilled. Yeah, it's it's good to see because the whole premise of it, obviously, is people that don't have a lot of opportunity being given this skill set that allows them to earn money, no matter where they go. Because this is not something that is a dying art. Like you know, there's always going to be a need for taxis everywhere, and to see them owning what they do, and and it, they just look like normal people, which is I think the goal. They don't look like people that are struggling. They don't look like people that are impoverished or in a disadvantaged situation. They just look like normal girls mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, normal women. And I think, that, I think that's the point, right, is like you give them the tools to feed themselves. They give them the tools to make their own income, to have their own businesses. And then they just have these really normal lives, which mm-hmm. is the whole point of the whole thing is that, you know, they, to me, when I walked in, I was like, wow, they, they just look like me. And I was like, okay, now I understand why, because... They've got a job. I have a job. You know, they make a living. I make a living. And they're just normal people now that have kind of bridged over from disadvantage to normal. And this is what it's supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like just normal people. And it was really good to see. Yeah. What an interesting concept for us in the Western world that have so much advantage and so much opportunity at our doorstep a lot of the time. I know Australia and America are different, but similar in a lot of ways. But mm-hmm. certainly, like, it's rare or uncommon for people here i feel to start on such a back foot and Mm -hmm. you know have to strive and work so hard to just get to normal yeah exactly and i think that was the that was a really cool thing to see is just a bunch of normal people showing up on their normal job healthy you know nobody's hungry everybody's healthy and happy smiling Mm. taking pictures and i was like okay this is success that's what it's supposed to be and and i mean what was it like for you as well, being there, you know, finally getting to, to do, to, to fulfill this kind of dream. Cause it feels like that's kind of what you're doing at the moment a lot. Like you were in Hawaii earlier this year, you know, you get this incredible footage of this whale from your drone. Um, yeah. I'm like, well, this guy's just like not ticking boxes. This guy's like living dreams. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to mess up. I'm nervous, you know, that I did. I, I was very nervous going into it because I think I told you, like, I'm not naturally a portrait photographer, you know, so going in and, you know, the last the last contact that they had with any kind of a professional photographer was the Hulu production team. Mm. And so I'm not saying that I'm anything like Hulu, but yeah, I just felt like I've, I've got to do it right. I can't, I can't mess this Maybe up. Maybe you're better than Hulu. I think my photos, I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I think it looked good, man. <laughs> 
<laughs> knock, knock, we'll step it up. Yeah, and I think your portraits are great. I mean, I remember seeing one portrait that you shot. There are some women dressed in like yellow gowns. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at one of the forts in Jaipur, yeah. Yeah, you talked to, uh, yeah. on a post, you talked about putting a smile on her face because you asked her how she kept herself so clean. Uh, yeah. Talk to me about that because... Yeah, yeah no, it's, these are groundskeepers at the fort there. Um, you know, their job is literally to sweep the hallways, but they figured out that if they dress... Um, and I actually caught flack on this in one of my stories. I had a couple people message me and say, you know, this is messed up that they have to do this. And I'm like, well, look at their situation. You know, like they are groundskeepers that are probably making four or $5 a day. And and they can do that. Nobody is saying, you know, you you have to get dressed up in these pretty outfits or anything like that. You know, you can go make your money and, and be done with your day. But they figured out that, you know, if they wear traditional clothing or whatnot, that they're, they're going to get asked for photos. And then people are going to give them some extra cash and they're going to make double, triple, quadruple, whatever they were going to make just for wearing their traditional garb. So, yeah. So, I mean, I had like, I think it was, I had $2 in cash. You know, I just handed it out to the ladies and said, pretend like I'm not here. Just carry on with your life and just let me take some pictures, you know? And so I sat with them for 10, 15 minutes, took their pictures, asked, you know, what they did. And they were like, yeah, we used to, to sweep here, but we figured out, you know, if we can sweep and make some extra money, the fort doesn't care because we look nicer and it attracts more travelers. So mm. it's just, it's cool to see um, a flower growing in the cement, mm. you know? Oh, that's, that's a really nice analogy. <laughs> Thanks, man. So that was Jaipur. Um, almost got run over by some elephants. That was fun going to the fort and the guy, that's so ridiculous. There's so many scam artists trying to make a buck, but he like turns around backwards on the elephant and he's like yelling at me, no pictures, no pictures. And I'm like, please, dude, come on. Like, you know, like you think I was born yesterday. So I started taking his picture while he's yelling at me not to take his picture. And he's like, you pay, you pay. And I was like, no, dude, I'm not paying for anything. Come get off the elephant and come take my money then. <laughs> and, you know, he's like, no, no pictures. So I got in front of the elephants and I ran and I got their pictures as they were walking up. And eventually he just gave up after. It's like you have to almost read through like a very thin layer of bullshit first. In a lot of the more touristy popular areas, there's mm. almost always a layer of bullshit that you have to cut through. And then you get like the real answer of what's kind of what's going on in that particular spot. Yeah. And that's one of them is like no pictures, no pictures. There's no rules against no pictures. The cops don't care. Obviously, you're supposed to take pictures. They're just trying to, you know, grub you out of some cash. Mm. So I got in front of the elephants, took my pictures. They gave up bothering me and kept going and <laughs> mm. yeah that was the end of the of the fort yeah you had some other really interesting interactions there was like a, a taxi driver that was taking me places as well that was yeah i mean this is like this is india 101 right is like everyone is trying to make as much money as humanly possible in the show i mean just like the rest of the world this is not anything unique to india but there's i think there's definitely as a tourist or as a, a foreigner or whoever, you can just expect to be targeted as much as possible. So anytime you're getting in a taxi or a tuk-tuk or anything like that, you can expect that you're going to pay double or triple the price of a local. And it's to the point where they would almost rather not take you mm. than, than allow you to pay the price of a local. Because for them, it's like, you know, I, I, I'm losing out on the opportunity to make triple. You know, I would rather not do it at all than let this guy get away with paying a local rate. So there is like a lot of back and forth and there's a lot of like, Oh, I'll wait for you. I'll stay here. And, you know, I'll keep the clock running. And it's, it's kind of exhausting, you know, at the end of the day to just have to be like bartering all of the time and just haggling all of the time. Um, it does get exhausting. Sometimes mm. I wish they were just fixed prices and you could just pay and be done with it. But mm. 
on the flip side of the coin, you can literally travel from one side of the city to the other side of the city for $2. And so it's like, okay, the local's paying 50 cents. I'm paying $2. Who cares? Like it's still $2 to yeah. go 45 minutes in a tuk-tuk. Like, yeah. What are you haggling yeah. for, man? Come on. Just give up. I'm the $2. not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> at this point, I'm like, I, I didn't even, I am like, as long as I'm paying at least the tourist rate, you know, like if it's $2, cool. You know, and so, yeah, but sometimes they would even try to go above and beyond that. And so you just have to know like what the rates are and stick to it. Yeah. And so how long in total did you spend in India? A little over three weeks. So it was close to a month. Three weeks? It felt like... Yeah, like like three, 25 days, 24 days, 25 days. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like longer. Well, the second half really dragged on. I'm not going to lie. There's not a lot of food variety at least the places that I was at, there wasn't a lot of food variety. And so it started to get like the second half of the trip. I was on antibiotics the entire time for constant uh, stomach infections because I wanted to try st- uh, street food. I was like eating street food, you know, quite frequently. Um, I would be hanging out with locals that would recommend street food and we just go to these little like stalls and, you know, there's a guy sitting there cross-legged and he's just folding some food right next to his feet and there's this stuff splashing everywhere and, you know, he's just folding it up and he yeah, hands it to you and you're like, yeah, I don't know what the hell this is, but I'm going to eat it and hope I don't die. <laughs> and then, you know, five hours later, your stomach's like, you're a dumbass and I'm going to show you why. <laughs> so luckily I had... Um, yeah, some antibiotics. I have some leftover ones, but luckily I packed some with me yeah, um, for you know for kind of the emergency Z pack experience, and that saved my ass and got me home. Yeah. But no, no, I remember at some point during your trip that I um I was giving you like I was having a laugh at like some of the food that you were trying, saying, "Come on, man, we have Indian restaurants here all the time," but I don't think I was actually grasping the full magnitude of what you were going through. Um, there, there, street food is is like there's Indian food because we have Indian food here too. You know, it's the American Indian food. Yours is probably better than ours. Um, and then there's like street food Indian food, which is like you know leaves that they just picked off of this tree that's behind them, mixed with some gum berry that was in another tree in the other guy's neighborhood, and then it's like mixed up and it looks like they're making you know drugs in front of you and like rolling it into a thing. And you're like, am I going to smoke this or eat this? You know, I've got a video. I'll send it to you. It was literally that. He's rolling it. And I'm like, this, I'm eating this or am I smoking this? And <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a wild experience, man. The food is, it, it's really good. Um, and I think one of my favorite experiences is just going to this this one place in, in Varanasi, which was my last location. And the most famous restaurant, I didn't realize it was a family style restaurant. And so I get there and sit down and sure enough, I'm like plopped in the middle of like two other Indian families. And I'm just like solo. And I thought I was going to get a table. They're like, no, we don't do tables here. This is like family style. And so I'm just in the middle of like 15 people. And, you know, there's, it's all eating with your hands. So it's just gobs of mush, different colored mush with like different leaves and like dough. And they like roll it up and they could tell that I was confused so the grandmother is like leaning over and she's like grabbing my food and like rolling it into a ball and like sticking it in front of me and then telling me to eat it. <laughs> so I'm just like, okay. So I'm just eating. And she, she did this. She basically baby fed me for like 20 minutes. She would lean over and like make combinations of the different colors and things. I don't know what I was eating. It was vegetarian, some sort of dough with like spices and stuff. And she would lean over and like make this food for me and then stick it with her bare hands in front of me yeah. and point at my mouth to eat it. Um, yeah, just 
Yeah. Yeah, culture, big culture shock. Yeah, like big time, which yeah. is... It was good. I mean, not like in a bad way, just... No, no, it was a good... I mean, how many of, like, how many people can imagine their grandmother making a total strange dude food with her hand and then telling him, like, no one would ever do that. Mm. Like, that's such a warm, welcoming thing mm-hmm. that just doesn't exist in most of the world. Yeah, yeah, and that's... that's I'm really glad that you said that because it really feels like... You had so the two spectrum, like two ends of the spectrum, with this whole India experience. It was only twenty five days, but it just seemed so jam packed. And then mm-hmm. on the one side, you've got the constant kind of the noise, you know, the chaos of the train, the the bartering and the haggling. And then on the other side, you've probably been welcomed as well as you've ever been welcomed anywhere in the world in your life, as well. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, it's definitely that, up there. There, there was no lack of hospitality at all. And that's that's such a beautiful thing to take away with you, uh, and mm-hmm. to be able to share with you know the people who are listening here now, the people that are watching um, your feed, is you know that that great side of it. It was good, man. Yeah, Varanasi was the last destination. That's the famous uh, city of light or city of the dead, depending on how you how you read it. And I guess. I'm curious about any reverse culture shock. I mean, coming back home, were you kind of a little bit, um, did you need to? Yeah, well, because everybody wants to know, you know, everyone wants to know what it's like. And I think everyone has their preconceived ideas of what India, you know, is like. Yeah. Um, and I just give them the boilerplate. Oh yeah, this food was fight spicy and you know, there's a lot of taxis and whatever. I just leave it at that. Um, but, you know, like Varanasi, that last location, that that was like one of the most, um, man, I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I ended up like, I threw away the shoes that I that I wore to that trip. I had like two pairs of, three pairs. Of, I, threw, I threw away all my shoes. I threw away multiple pairs of clothing. Um, Why? That I, that I was wearing on that spot just because they, they became so contaminated um, in Varanasi. And, and like, so then... So my friends will ask, you know, what what was India like and what was the experience? And I'm purposely leaving out Varanasi because I think that Varanasi was such a incredibly, it was just like so overwhelming in so many ways um, to the point where I literally just threw away my shoes because I didn't, you know, mm. yeah, it, it was one of those kind of things. And that's the one that I'm debating about, like how much of this, you know, do I publish? You know, how mm. much of this do I actually put out there? Because it's, it's like very, very stark compared to the rest of India. Mm. Mm. But I need to know what it, what that is. <laughs> so Varanasi is known. Uh, it's on the, Gan- the Ganges River, which is like their holiest river. Mm. And the idea is if you're cremated in Varanasi, then you skip the cycle of uh, of, of rebirth and you go straight to um, nirvana i hope i'm explaining that correctly but you basically attain nirvana and you don't get reincarnated anymore that's the hindu concept behind being uh, cremated in varanasi and then having your ashes dumped into the ganges river um and so to this day there's anywhere from 300 to 500 bodies being burned daily on the on the riverbed across the course of about a mile um, and then the bodies and the remains are then being dumped into the river um, so it's just human remain, like it's a huge river of just human remains. Um, and the people that can't afford to be cremated, sometimes the bodies are just dumped whole into the river and, um, and there's people bathing in the river and there's, you know, rituals being performed. Um, 
there's folks called the Babas, which are like the holy men. They pride themselves on, um, I, I like their style of spirituality. They, they believe that uh, if you smoke a lot of weed and you get really drunk, that you can attain this like disassociated form of spirituality. <laughs> so that's what they do. And, um, and they also will uh, cover their bodies head to toe in the ashes of the, of the bodies. And so they'll smear their bodies in the ashes to make themselves, um, you know, look white. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, just, you know, the sights and the smells and the, you know, the bodies and just kind of the whole experience. Um, it's just that that was probably like the biggest culture shock of them all. Um, I remember the first night that I was there, I went to the Ghats, which the Ghats are where they do all the cremation. It's kind of like the docks. Um, and I just parked up and of course you get swarmed with people. Oh, you can't take pictures here, but you know, for five bucks, I'll show you where you can take pictures and this kind of, you know, nonsense. And so, you know, eventually they realized that I wasn't paying and I also wasn't leaving either. I was going to be there and I was going to respectfully take pictures from where I was out of, you know, because I don't want to get in the way of the families that are, um, you know, grieving or mourning or having their funerals. So I was always kind of off to the side, um, what I really wanted to photograph was the untouchables, which is like this caste. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with like the caste system in India where they like, you have like first class citizens and then yeah. kind of your middle people that work and whatever. And then the bottom is considered like the untouchables, the people that tend to the bodies and keep the fires going. And, you know, the, the folks that are right, like yeah. almost not even citizens is kind of, and it's supposed to be a system that was done away with, but it's very much there. Um, you know, and I wanted to photograph the people and that's some of the portraits that I'm the most proud of, um, that I'm excited to post, hopefully is just, you know, these average everyday people tending to the fires, you know, and 24 seven, keeping them going, you you know, like I'm, I'm sitting on the stairs there and there's, um, you know, this, this body that's on fire and one of the arms Mm. literally snaps off and rolls like four or five steps down. And this guy, you know, who's tending the fire walks over with these big, they kind of look like chopsticks. And he picks up the, the burnt arm and walks over and puts it back on the fire and like fluffs it up and gets the fire going again. And just, you know, I got pictures of his face while he's working and just, you know, like, it's just such a surreal experience. It's like something you would never see. And that's happening times 300 in every direction around you, you know, and the smells and, you know, the, the smoke and the ash from, you know, the remains landing on your body and, you know, you're covered in, in, in remains, just mind boggling stuff. Um, Mm. yeah. And then, you know, and then kind of the, 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 the kind of the hallmark, like, holy crap, shocking moment, I think was walking back. And I stopped at one of the docks because there was a guy selling water and I bought a water and I sat down and I'm like looking off and this, this almost sounds fake when I like say this out loud. And I had to research what these guys are called. I think they're called um, Agati, or I think it's called Agati. I'll have to research it. But um, they are the other side of the spiritual spectrum from the Baba. So they practice um, kind of like the dark, the darker side of that mm-hmm. spirituality. And they are the most famous for cannibalism. Um, and so I'm sitting here just on the dock, drinking my water. It's probably you know midnight, and. I'm looking kind of into this little like hut thing that's on the water there. Um, you know, and there are these guys that just pulled out, you know, fresh pieces from the fire and, you know, we're just having dinner, um, you know, from the fire. Um, and, and I just, I say this and I like, in my mind, I'm like, is this reality? And I had to, I had to ask the guide the next day. I was like, is this, am I, 
seeing things? Was that, you know, and he's like, no, that's, you know, cannibalism is like a really big thing for that particular sect um, of those folks. And, and they, uh, they smear themselves in the, uh, in the black ash of the fire to separate themselves from mm-hmm. the Babas that do the white ash. Uh, just, mm. you know, yeah, it's wow. just so insanely, wow. you know, yeah. So after that, I was like, okay, let's get a boat and get, get off the docks for a minute and just kind of breathe and take some photos from the water. Like all the other tourists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you asked for it. So there it is. Maybe you should put a disclaimer before. <laughs> Yeah. And I got photos of everything. And that's the crazy part, right? It's like my camera was on me the entire time. So photos of this guy, you know, doing yeah. his thing and photos of all of these folks. And it's just, it's all there. And it's like 50 megapixels of raw splendor, you know, and it's like, that. it's just. Yeah. Yeah. You can't really explain it. Yeah. If you're listening right now, I want to know what you think of this. But, um, okay, now I, I see the debate the internal struggle that you might be having around some of this content. And all I could say is that if your audience is used to seeing something, um, don't take them from like zero to a hundred (laughs) or zero to 60, as they say in the U S um, you know, like too quickly. Um, because I can't go from tigers to cannibals. (laughs) Well, actually they're kind of correlated. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I don't know. Do tigers eat other tigers? Uh, yeah. No, but yeah. um, but I think I mean, I've said it probably a dozen times in this recording, and you know I really love the path that you're taking and the track that you're going down of of telling the side stories, and, and not just the the pretty pictures. I mean, this is the really beautiful, important stuff, and you you just do it so well. But are there stories? I mean, are there stories that we we shouldn't tell or that we should try to think about finding ways of telling that are maybe palatable to certain audiences. I mean, yeah, this, I mean, this is definitely one of the more extreme travel experiences, if not the most extreme from just a humanity and a cultural, I mean, aside from being in like a war zone, I'm not really sure what else would stack up with kind Mm. of this kind of, you know, gut check of, of on the cultural side. So to your point, do you just put that out there and hope that, you know, because I don't, I think nine, 90% of the people that, that would see that or hear about that would not be, you know, inclined to, to want to know what's going on, mm. nor is it necessarily like a bad thing. Like, I mean, to, I mean it, for me, it crosses the line morality wise, but for them, that's their religion. It's their experience. It's what they've been doing for 6,000 years. Those gods have been around longer than most civilizations, you mm. know, um, it's mm. one of the oldest, if not the oldest cities in the world. So it's like, who are we to, you know, I don't know. Yeah. No, you're right. But, it, I mean, it, it's got me thinking a little bit about humanity and us as, a, as a, a species that's been on this planet for a very long time. And I think it's only now in recent history, like I'm talking like the last hundred and something years maybe, um, mm-hmm. where we've got the choice to turn a blind eye to the things in our cultures that are happening around us. I mean, before we couldn't, like... You know, we were before, say, television and newspapers, you know, you would hear about the, the stuff that was happening in your community. You would be part of it. You would be fully immersed in, in whatever was happening. There was a war. 
there was a famine, there was a, you know, a, a, a wedding, a birth in your community. You know, sure. think about being back in the candle era before, right, you know, right. gas lighting yeah. and all of that. You were fully immersed in the experience of being a human being in that mm. place and time. But now it's like we've got so many choices. I mean, you can just turn on the Kardashians and not see what's going on around you, that there's a garbage sure. man that comes to collect your trash every week. Mm. And, and you can literally live a life in a bubble where you can not consider anyone else that's actually part of keeping you functioning in this society and i just think it's really interesting like do we keep ourselves in these bubbles or do we tell these stories and i think what you've done is really brave to go there and expose yourself to that because there's plenty of people that wouldn't right there's plenty of people that would have got there and turned their noses up and gone no way i can't handle this i'm out of here but you stuck around and you took the shots you understand the whys you're able to tell the story. And I think that's really brave and really special. Um, and we need more of that. And that's what I believe. But what do you, what does the oh, audience believe? What do you I think? That's, it's nice of you to say that because there wasn't, I, you know, you can tell there, there's all of these, uh, there's so many things happening in my mind right now. It's hard to put it all into, into a cohesive train of thought, but they, um, they've opened up this tent, tent city on the other side of Varanasi, on the other side of the Ganges, for the tourists that don't want to be close to what's happening. And it literally looks like, you know, because the one side is the old city that's 6,000 years old. Mm. And then on the other side of the Ganges, which is not a wide river, you can easily see to the other side. It's full of all these tents where the tourists and the Westerners can go and they can have kind of a more luxury experience. And then they can hop in a, a rowboat or a motorboat and go up against the gods. And, and get the photos and, and see the burning and, and that sort of thing from a distance and not have to be on the docks, not have to smell it, not have to, you know, feel it, feel the heat, feel the dust, you know, landing on you. And, you know, getting the photos with that guy, talking to them, you know, I probably, I think I talked to maybe 15 different people to figure out what the hell was happening and why things were happening. But I'm the only person there. It's like very, very few and far between, you know, um, tourist wise everyone's on these boats 500 feet off into the water far away from us taking pictures of me taking pictures of them <laughs> so it was like i'm kind of in this weird bubble um yeah. you know where i was like i'm i'm being photographed by the tourists while i'm photographing <laughs> it's yeah. just very strange but you know they're not they're not hearing about the stories they're not hearing about you know the fact that there's more temples in varanasi um per square mile than anywhere anywhere else in india and, and the idea is that people donate to these temples because people come to Varanasi to die because they want to be cremated there. Um, and so folks will come there in the final days of their lives planning on dying. And so the city is full of old people that are just there waiting. Mm. Um, and a lot of their family can't afford to stay there with them. And so their family will say their goodbyes to their grandmothers, to their moms, their wives, their husbands. And the families will leave because they can't afford to stay there. And then grandmother will literally go into these towers um, that are at the top of the cremation sites. And they, they're just big empty rooms and they just sit there on mats. And they, and they rely on the generosity of people visiting the temples to pay for food and whatnot while they wait to pass away. And, you know, and you don't get these kind of stories. You don't get, you don't figure out why, you know, you're looking at it from a boat 500 feet away and you see, you know, people are being cremated and that's all you know. And you don't mm-hmm. understand that the buildings behind those 
are full of old people that are, you know, waiting to pass away here because that's incredibly important to their, you know, spirituality. And it, there's just so much more behind it that is completely missed. And it is sad that you can't talk about it because uh, I think if I were to put out um, some stories explaining this, uh, you know, assuming they didn't get flagged by social media and shut down, I'm not sure people want to hear about this anyway. You know, it's yeah, it's a it's a weird spot to be in. Mm. No, I mean personally, I've got like little tears that have started to well in my eyes just then, like listening because it's it's the thing that's missing from mm-hmm. our modern day lives is the reality check of what happens when we get to our end. And I think that the experiences that we have in Western life that make us kind of stop are those those real ones. It's when a family member or a great uncle or your best friend, when they die, it's mm-hmm. like it, it makes you stop and think about the way that you conduct your own life for a bit. And like I think that's a really amazing thing to do, like daily or weekly even or monthly, is to just stop and think about what you're doing with your own life and to have the experiences that enable you like or to get you to that place so that years mm-hmm. and years and decades of your life don't just pass and you get to the end of it and go, what did I do? Right. I think these reality checks are so good for us. And yeah, like I said, it's really brave of you to to be the one that's willing to tell these stories. And I know like the word brave is a bit like, <laughs> like is someone calling you brave right now? But, but storytelling does take courage. Uh, and I think that that's what you're doing and that's what you're becoming. And that's why I love talking to you. That's why I love having you on the podcast. Um, I listened to our last episode. I don't usually listen to it for a couple of weeks. I listened to our last episode and I was like, God, Drew's just such a great storyteller. He's just well, so These much- places are remarkable. That's They tell their own stories. That's, mm. the, that's the wild part. If you just go there, you can go there with an empty book and it'll be full and you won't know how it happened and you won't remember writing it, but it'll be, it'll be full by the time you leave. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'll have to sort of, finish these episodes kind of because i think we've got to a good point now um where if anyone wants to learn more they can catch you on social media we'll share it again drew travels for life uh, yes sir on instagram i'll be tagging the hell out of you but like what does india need from western visitors um i think india needs western visitors to understand that and this is kind of a hard reality for me to swallow too and i didn't learn this until the very end of the trip India is a is a third world country on on paper, and and walking the streets of India, it feels like a third world country. You can't drink the water. The electricity randomly shuts off in in metropolitan cities. The whole entire hotel will just shut down, and they have to have backup generators, or everything just stops working. Um, you know the food. It, there there's so many like things that that people perceive as like negatives, and I think that the world needs to realize that the reason that this is the the case is because India has been the stomping ground of empires, you know, like they were they were taken over by the Mughal Empire. Uh, they were taken over by the British. And if you look at the technology and the healthcare and, and what India had before those two major powers came in and just strip-mined the entire country, um, you know, the British particularly, their technology was incredible. They had some of the best healthcare in the world. They had some of the best, you know, sanitary systems in the world. Mm-hmm. And then after the British came in, and after the moguls came and they knocked them down two, 300 years worth of technology and then they left. And so what we're looking at is like, 
a country that's rebuilding from basically being ravaged by other larger colon, you know, colonizing nations. Um, and I think when you look at it from that perspective, you don't make the mistake like I did of necessarily saying, you know, why, why are they okay with this pollution? Why are they okay with, you know, with the, the culture the way it is? And you start to maybe look at it from the perspective of these guys are doing the absolute best that they can with what little pieces that they were left behind from Western nations that came in and just decimated the country and then left them in shambles. And so, yeah, they are a third world country because people like us made it like that, you mm-hmm. know, a long, long time ago. And, you know, and I'm not saying that to, to make people like you and I feel guilty. Like, obviously we never had a part in this, but when we travel there, don't look at it from the perspective, you know, of they are choosing to be like this. Mm-hmm. This was cast on them and, and, you know, and they are really are doing the best that they can with what they were dealt. Yeah, I love that. I love the historical context that you add to it. It's so important to to consider history um, whenever we're engaging in the modern world. You know, why is something the way it was, mm-hmm. uh, the way it is? Well, it's because of something that happened a while ago. It's not just a snapshot that you're seeing right now. India got his independence in what, like the 60s or the 70s? This is not all that long ago. Mm-hmm. My mom was around mm-hmm. when India, you know, you know, she was like a teenager when India got their independence from Britain, you know, so this is not all that long ago, um, you know, which it's wild to think about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, I'm, I'm absolutely chuffed to have had you back on the show again on the podcast. Yeah. It's, it's just, um, yeah, it's been a, a great couple of months to sort of be watching you do your thing, Hawaii, India, and just feeling... Um, inspired by you and i know that you said that you're like you don't consider yourself an influencer at all but i think you you yeah, certainly influence me um because i get to see someone that i really respect um on a personal level um, actually going through with the things that they say they're going to go through with which is really rare and yeah just fully immersing yourself i just love the way you go about it man so i just want to say a big thanks again from me and the audience and um, for coming back and i guess we'll just keep doing this from time to time right yeah well something tells me the next time we're going to be doing it together because yeah. you and i have been flirting with this idea of a trip to venezuela so <laughs> i know i know yes that's going to happen that's definitely going to happen at some point i owe cut a visit in colombia as well so um yeah, 2024, we said it. So we've still got a few months to, to sort of before oh, yeah. we, we yeah, plan. Um, but yeah, it's been awesome having you on. Uh, thank you so much. And I guess I'll sp- we'll speak to you soon. Yeah. Thanks again, as always. Thanks, everyone, for if you made it this far. <laughs> thank you, guys. Um, yeah, the, the, I, these are the important stories, right? What Louis is doing is 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 casting a light on on the stories that don't you know, it's not NBC, it's not Fox News, it's not, you know, the big uh, TV channels in the US or in, or in Australia or in Europe, you know, that it, these are like the, the homegrown stories that, that people don't get to hear. And so I'm super grateful that I've got a friend, um, you know, that's doing this because it's a rare thing. So yeah. thank you guys for, for listening. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm grateful to have you too, Drew. Thank you. Thanks, man. Hey there, listener. We'd love to know what you thought of that episode of the Louis Diaz podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and even TikTok to let us know. And be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave us a review on Spotify, where you can catch some of our other really great episodes. Thanks for listening, and catch you next time.